This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Exodus of Spiders and Falcons, and the author is Jason R. Jones, and Jason joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Jason. Hello. How are you doing, Steve? Good to have you here to talk about this epic fantasy saga, as you call it, The Exodus of Spiders and Falcons. It's book one in the Exodus series. You're, I don't know. How many are you going to do? Do you have any idea? I know you already have the second one in the works. Uh, second one's almost done, and it's 18 altogether. 18? Oh, my goodness. Yep. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And a lot of the same characters through the uh, series? It is. It is. Most of the same characters through the whole series. A uh, core group of uh, heroes that's together pretty tight, and okay. uh, a lot of the same villains as well. Well, I'm going to read a few things that you've written about your book just to establish for everyone... Uh, what the book is about uh, in general, and then we'll talk about specific characters and some of the plot, give people a little insight into the Exodus. Uh, you say the Exodus is the greatest fantasy adventure that begins as a man telling his son of the past. The heroes, villains, places, and adventures are the stuff of dreams and legends. You say anyone who loves fantasy, a medieval history, old religion, mythology, adventure, or great epic tales of heroics will dive right into this work of fiction. They will follow the unique and deep characters, villains you love to hate, monsters and maidens, touched with a deep spiritual saga of struggle from many angles as the world changes. It takes you away from this world, entrenches you into another, and it's hard to put down. Well, <laughs> that is uh, a good summation of all that this book is. It's real fast moving and it has uh, it takes us into another world. Tell us about this world of the Exodus. Uh, okay. Uh, the Exodus is uh, a different world far from here. Um, similar in many, many aspects, but uh, it has a lot more flavor of life, as uh, as I like to call it. Um, it has two moons, little differences, uh, like the sun rising in, in uh, the west instead of the east, things of that nature. A lot of your mythological creatures and creatures of history and, and uh, uh, various real-world religions and, and nationalities and mythologies have actually survived and uh some of them have, uh, you know, come up with communities, and uh, you know, their their entire life has, has changed and become civilized. Um, you know, here on our world, there there aren't minotaurs. It's something we talk about in, you know, classes about mythology. But there, there are uh, elves, dwarves, dragons, ogres, giants, the fairies, the sprites, the pixies. Uh, all, all the things of dreams and stories uh, are still struggling to survive on the, uh, the southernmost continent, the last continent where they still uh, exist. Uh, so it's, it's right before their extinction, 
and I like to think of it almost like in, in the stories of our world, uh, the old tales of, of paganism and uh, fairies and dwarves and all that that, that spread across Europe and uh, Asia, India, and throughout our own countries and histories. Before those became just stories, that's kind of the setting where this book takes place, uh, where the whole story takes place, right before their extinction, the last continent of Agara that they're on, uh, and, and they're struggling to survive. What are they facing that's going to cause extinction? Uh, it, it's a mass of things. Mostly it's the northern continent of, of Altistan. It's the changing times of religion and mankind, um, organizing and realizing mankind's destiny and uh, uh, all the great things that the humans that mankind can do when organized with government, uh, religion, spirituality, and, and finding that religion, that, that one God, that uh, monotheistic belief that they are the chosen race and this is their destiny, this is their religion, this needs to be spread across the world. That's been going on for thousands of years to a point where it's, it's either uh, driving people away or driving them to uh, join their ways and beliefs and really the old ways and religions uh, of different deities and races are just becoming extinct and being driven further away, ignored, forgotten, or, in many cases, killed off. And, uh, yeah, much like our own history, uh, religious wars were some of the biggest, most important, most destructive things that, that ever happened. They also brought some of the best learning, teaching, you know, science, health, medicine to, to far-off countries, but they also destroyed many of those old ancient beliefs in, in people. And if you look centuries and millennia later, those people aren't the same as they were when, when organized religion found them. Well, as you say, the struggles of survival and the reliance upon a higher power or powers go hand in hand. So what kind of uh, reliance on higher powers do these people, uh, are they looking to? Well, they're looking to, uh, you know, the goddess of earth and, and nature, Serena. They're uh, looking to their own, their personal deities, the dwarves looking to their god of the mountain, the elves looking to their deities, um, trying to, to hang on to something and band together. Uh, and uh, many of the old religions told by the humans and, and uh, the fairies and the fake court and the minotaurs, you know, they're all, they have to all pull together eventually to just have a chance at survival. Um, it reminds me a lot of like the Roman Empire, when a small country would stand alone against the Roman Empire before their occupation would start. They had no chance. I mean, very little chance at all. Um, they're just outnumbered and outmatched. So they have to pull together with, uh, you know, their various different deities and churches and beliefs and religions. And out of that, heroes become born, and they have to rely on them and take some divine guidance if they have any chance to, you know, make a journey to make a stand against this inevitable change from, from the North. Tell us the main character. Is there one main hero? There is. Every book I have is going to, uh, uh, the, the main, main hero will have the focus put on them, but it's going to change each book. Uh, the first book is James Vandellis. He is uh, an orphan from Southwind Keep in the cold southernmost tip of Agara, the kingdom of Kazrin. He's been raised to fight for king and country, for uh, for God, for for Alden, the, the father of mankind, and uh, 
one of the most growing religions uh, in the whole continent. And uh, he, uh, that's all he knows. And he is proud and he is brave. And during his, his uh, early 20s, he's involved in a, a war that's supposed to be the greatest war of that kingdom's time in the last who knows how long. And it doesn't go well. And he prays, and he relies on, uh, you know, prayer and faith that everything's going to be fine, and it doesn't turn out fine. His, most of everyone he knows is killed in this battle, and he ends up being the lone survivor. Um, in that grief, that terror of all that he thought was right went wrong, uh, losing all his brothers and friends in the war, uh, Lord Arlen Llewellyn, who he looked up to. During all that, he basically develops an anger, a hatred, a resentment um, that just can't be undone. Um, and he crawls into the, uh, the bottle of wine. And that's where the story sort of picks off for him is after you meet him is what has he been doing this last decade since this, this terrible defeat. And uh, he's been out hunting the ogre, his, his hated, most hated enemy, uh, who took everything he believed in away from him, and he's basically become a wino and fallen from grace, fallen from knighthood, and that's what he's done with his life. And uh, he's about to, uh, it just overtakes him to a point that there's no amount of bloodshed killing uh, revenge that will ever take care of his thirst. There's no amount of wine that will put him down for good. There's, there's nothing to do. He can't go back and change the past. So he, uh, at one point early on in the, the book, he decides he's just going to end it. And that's where he meets. That's where he meets some of the other characters. Who is his greatest ally, or could be a woman? His greatest ally is probably Azneth Thalanex, one of the other characters. Uh, it goes by Zen for short. Uh, a dwarven priest. Not of a, obviously of a different religion and a different uh, ethnic background, but the fact that the two men are very pious. Um, he probably relies on Zen the most, and they understand each other the best out of anybody. Uh, just based on the growing up with religion, the, the hard study, the prayer, the you know, faith and belief in something bigger than yourself that has got it all planned out for you. All you have to do is take the steps. Um, yeah, I would say his, his closest ally would definitely be Zen. Give us some more details about the antagonist, the, uh, the evil in, in this complex saga. <laughs> the evil... Um, the antagonists are, well, there's many. Uh, the main villain is, is the one you love is Kendari of Stillwood. Kendari was once one of the uh, Garion elves that first helped men come down the, uh, from the northern continent when they fled uh, uh, in the first exodus. When they came down from the north many thousands of years ago and they've been betrayed and wiped out and kind of humanized. Well... This elf did some atrocious things and was cursed about 400 years ago out of his 600 years of long life. He has black spiral veins on his face and markings, and he's just sinister and cursed for all time. To uh, He should go out and just end his own life. He's cursed. He can't go to the sacred places elves like to go. He's hunted. But out of defiance of the gods and the fake horde and the curse, he, he goes out and carves himself quite a living. And uh, he manages to spy upon James after he meets some of the other characters decides not to kill himself and uh, embroils himself in some of the drama and saga as they try to escape the southern realms as they're being uh, war waged and uh, a special scroll that they find that they're going to try to make off with and 
get looked at and a very spiritual, holy relic, and he decides he's going to get involved just more out of boredom in his first life. He is probably the deadliest swordsman on the entire continent, but uh, maliciously evil. Are there any good witches in this story? Uh, I wouldn't say witches. I'd say we've got uh, a good wizard. Wizards? Um, one, of the main, <laughs> one of the main characters is Gwyneth Laslett, daughter of the most famous uh, wizard academy in all of the kingdom. And uh, she is beyond her power at 30 years old. Uh, she could be running her own academy. And uh, she definitely has the capability to pull lightning and thunder from the clouds and uh, fly up in the air and hurl balls of fire and, and steam and uh, turn things to stone at the, the enemies of our heroes as they uh, travel through the southern region of Kazrin on their quest. And this quest, is the quest for just freedom or in peace, or is there a quest for some... Uh, uh, you know, imaginary, created, uh, 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 just uh, kind of a gem or something that people are just seeking to have. Uh, what what is the what are they seeking? I guess that's my question. What are what's the good and the evil seeking? Uh, the the good are seeking to escape, to flee out of the kingdom of Kazrin and get north. They have with them. Uh, a couple of things, but most importantly and currently is a scroll they found under these ruins when they first met that uh, none of them knew how powerful or valuable it was. It was an old, old religious scroll that has some powerful connotations and secrets to it that I won't go into now. Uh, but uh, it is so valuable that men would definitely wage war or kill over it. And through most of the books, the group doesn't even know its value. They have no idea why they're being chased and hunted just as they are and they need to escape. And uh, throughout the book it develops, you know, in their journey on why they're being hunted, what they have, and why it isn't so important so important that they get out of Kazrin. Um, and they're chased by far more than they have any idea about. And uh, that's kind of the, the, the gripping part of it is when they come into the, the city of Valhurst and they are swarmed with assassins, cutthroats, People thirsting to carve a, carve their name into their hides and take down a hero with their blades to get you know, their name immortalized, and uh, the way they fight through that in such overwhelming odds is just amazing. Well, you say this: my story is brutal and realistic in the part that people fail, they can die, and religion, like our own history through the centuries, plays a bigger role than most governments or leaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking back through history, I mean, the church, when you look through, uh, you know, the Dark Ages, Medieval Ages, even ancient history, the church, and then uh, anyone that was a high priest, a leader of a church group, uh, things like that, you know, the Vatican, that's where a lot of the power was. Yes, governments waged war and things like that, and, and things happened, but, uh, I mean, the church always had to be respected. The church had power. Uh, various religions in their, in their heyday, the, you know, the Egyptians, I mean, that was... They believed their pharaoh, their king, was a god. And uh, in my books, religion does play a very important part. The, the contrast between religions, the different districts of the same religion, um, different beliefs interpreted different ways for the same, the Book of Alden, uh, you know, the father, basically, I, I would attribute him to sort of uh, 
sort of like Christianity, I would guess. Uh, you know, God of man and, and sacrifice and mercy. Um, but that the church wars with itself um, at times, you know, real wars uh, over belief. And uh, it is dark. It is brutal. If you look back on our history in this world, it's, it's not a bunch of heroes running around with, uh, you know, crosses on their backs, you know, saving the day. It's a brutal, war-filled history of, of religion and, and the sword and, and uh, of just of war to try to make a better world. And that is a lot where, where mine gets its drive and power from is the religions are trying to do it. They're trying to do the will of their, their gods. They're men trying to interpret this and take action on this. But it's not always right. People make mistakes, people fail, and, and people die. And uh, I like that, that gritty reality of it. Jason, tell us how to get your book. All right, you can go to jasonrjones.com or www.theexodussagas.com. You can get it from Author House on the Author House website, and you can even go to Books A Million, Barnes & Noble, Borders, Amazon. I mean, they've got it everywhere. Well, congratulations again. We appreciate you being on Author Talk. Well, thank you very much, Steve. I appreciate you having me. That was Jason R. Jones, and the title of his book is The Exodus of Spiders and Falcons. It's an epic fantasy saga, and it's in... This is book one in the Exodus series. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, you living the dream like Nina and Cindy? Sweet jeans are made of Were you shocked by the Chuck E. Cheese calamities, diaper dilemmas, and major mom minivan mishaps? Then get ready to share it with Living the Dream Moms with Nina Fry and Cindy Schmitzer, Thursday mornings at 10, 9 a.m. Central on Toginet. And as Nina and Cindy say, if you're thinking it, we're saying it. It's your chance to discuss, share, and learn from two moms who have been there, done that, and yes, they have the t-shirts. And they're for sale at ltdchix.com. Living the Dream Moms is all about all things moms have to deal with daily. Nina and Cindy are two ordinary frazzled moms who admit when they need help and do their best to research and discuss topics that are not always talked about. Living the Dream Moms are just two real women who are discussing the trials and tribulations and triumphs of everyday mom lives. You are not alone. It's Living the Dream Moms with Nina Fry and Cindy Schmitzer. Thursday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. What's your story? Are you living it? Well, you could be. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Her passion is helping others discover, create, and live their personal brands. Yep, you heard me. You have a brand. No different than Coke, Pepsi, or Nike. You are a walking, talking, living, breathing brand. You're not a logo. You're not a tagline. The choices you make become the path you take. This is your brand. Now, live your story. Your brand is not just what you say it is. It's also what others say it is. So what are you communicating? And how can you create an authentic brand? We'll take on these challenges with What's Your Story? Every week, Hillary will feature teens, moms, and organizations that are learning and living their story. Now, her passion is to help others discover, create, and live their personal brands. To find out more, go to inspiredbyfamily.com. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. 
The title of the book, Labor Pains, A Biblical Perspective of God's Destiny for Your Life. And the author, Kay Blue Games. And Kay joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Kay. Hello, Steve. How are you? Very good. And uh, interesting insights into God's destiny for our lives. So let me read uh, some things that you've written about your book that will help us better understand, in general, what the book is about. Uh, You say Labor Pains is written as a spiritual guideline, giving a concise biblical view of how you can achieve God's destiny and purpose for your life. You are here on this earth by God's divine plan and purpose, not by chance. That's very important, isn't it, to know that we're here not by chance. That's right. Well, tell us why you wrote the book. Why write this book? It's it's a big job to publish a book. Yes, it is. Okay, I was instigated to write this book after having a woman's conference, of which the theme was labor pains. This came from a passage of scripture taken from Isaiah chapter 37 and verse 3. And it read, this is a day of trouble and frustration and blasphemy. It is a serious time as when a woman is in heavy labor trying to get birth and the child does not come. I realize that there are mankind, which, which includes men and women, who are pregnant with God's plan and purpose. They may have started the process and some were not able to develop to full term and aborted the plan of God. Some came to the place of giving birth to that plan and were afraid because of negative, negative things that have been spoken into their lives. Hence, they are paralyzed with fear and need help to come forth, while there are others who follow through to full maturation with the plan of God and have made it with flying colors. I have therefore developed a manuscript or a book using the word of God, which has examples of patriarchs, priests, prophets, and kings, and others who have made mistakes or they have done it successfully. We can learn from these mistakes or pattern our lives from the successes using the word of God and prayer as our base, with God the Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit as our guide and our dependency. If we follow through these guidelines that I have given in my book, you can make it regardless to who you are. You can fulfill and come to that place of destiny and purpose in Christ Jesus. Praise God. You talk about how fear can immobilize us and prevent us from operating in confidence from our Lord. How do we uh, fight fear? How do we get rid of fear out of our lives? Okay, I've mentioned in my book that fear is one of the elements that prevents us from fulfilling our potentials, dreams, and goals, and ambitions in life. In that God has... He said to Jeremiah, said, I know the plans that I have for you. They are plans of God and not of evil to bring you to an expected end. But there are times in our lives when people would have said things to us, making us demeaning, you know, and making us being fearful. 
they have, you know, pulled us down and they have made us just paralyzed with fear that we cannot come forth. The negative things that they have said to us cause us to buckle in fear. And that's what the, the, this gentleman, Rab Nesher, had said when he came to Jerusalem and breathed out threats and causing the people to be afraid. But I just, I use the word of God that in this book that is going to help you to come forth because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power of love and of a strong mind. And if I would just take um, just an example from David, David was a man of prayer and praise. And when in, in, the, in Samuel, when, it's, when he spoke about David, when a bear and um, it was a lion who came to attack his father's sheep, he could have been stricken with fear, but he smote them and took the lamb and the lion from, from, both, from, the, from the sheep. And God has been given him strength, and he has made him a conqueror. And when the time came for him to go forth and fight um, Goliath, David went to him, and he said, You come to me, you know, when, with, with spear and with shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who has, you have defied. And this, what this is actually saying is that sometimes we do it in our own strength. But God wants us to use the strength that he has empowered us with. He wants us to use a, um, prayer, the weapon, which is mighty, and it is not carnal. And he wants us to, to go in the strength of the Lord. So he said, strengthen your weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are fearful, are those who are, you know, stricken with fear in their hearts, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come through with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. So regardless of what we have gone through, just, we just need to know that we ought not to fear. God is going to be there with us. So our trials, our testings, our hard times, just lean upon God, and he would come true for us. Yes, as you say, don't lose hope. You are positioned and poised for a miracle. And Jesus yes. is concerned about each and every one of us. Now, often we forget that, that Jesus is concerned about each and every one of us, don't we? Don't, yes, it's so true. You know, sometimes we, we, we um, forget that God loves us. He's concerned about us. And, uh, you know, we, we, we sometimes go to our friends that, who cannot help us. We look to, you know, the, to the, go to people in the wrong places. And uh, they cannot help us. We need to look to God and know that He's our source. He's our strength. He's our provider. He's our Jehovah Jireh. And he, he said, for instance, when, when Joshua was about to cross over with the children of Israel, he said, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land as sown to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and be very courageous. Hallelujah. Do not let this book of the Lord depart from your mouth, but meditate upon day and, day and night so that you may be careful to do everything that is written in it. And that's what we have used, the Word of God, 
And he said, be not terrified. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God would be with you wherever you go. You say we're living in perilous days. Of course, it's, that is all around us. We read about it in the news. Uh, nations are facing all sorts of crisis, economic hardships, natural disasters. And, of course, governments don't have the solutions to the problems that their countries are facing. So we need to have that, as you put it, an attentive ear, don't we, to hear the prophetic word. That's right. Yes. We, we have to learn when we have our dreams and our visions and the prophetic word when it comes forth that God is able to keep his promise for us. You know, um, like Joseph, he had a dream, you know, and he, regardless to what happened, whether he, he went in the pit, he was sold as a, as a slave to the Potiphar's house, he was in prison, being innocent, yet he kept focus of the dream and the vision to where God was taking him. And he ended up as the governor. Yes, we are facing perilous times, dangerous times, you know, but what we need to do is look to God. Um, as I have, I have here in my book, are you ready to run with the dream and the vision that God has created and crafted for you? Remember, he does not call the qualified, but he he qualifies the call. God will place in your grasp the resources necessary to fulfill the call, be it a politician, a church leader, a youth pastor, a lawyer. He will surround you with the right people and elements that would push you into your destiny and accomplish his plan and purpose. So, yes, we are living in perilous times. But God has a way that he has plotted for us. And we just need to know that God will see us through. He is Jehovah Jireh. David said, I was once young and now that I'm old, I've never seen the righteous forsaken and his seed begging bread. We just need to be obedient to where God is calling us and where he's taking us. And know that we just have to hold on to what the Word of God says. The psalmist wrote, in, um, he said, as, as in the time when Joseph was in slavery, he said that though, though the people were, you know, they, 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 they were about to experience a famine, but God had a plan. And he took Joseph through all the different testings and trials in life because he knew that he was going to save not just the people of Egypt, but he was about to save Joseph's family. He took him through all this. And we are going through some tough times, yes. And God is doing it to us to wake up his people, stir them up, because he has a way of bringing, using these tests and trials to bring us through to the place where he wants us to recognize that he is God. As we saw what happened in Haiti, the people now, they're not just calling for food, but they're calling for the preachers, they're calling for churches to just come and give them a word of God. Because, you know, they have gone through some things, yes, and it shook them up, it waked them up, but they have the realization that God is at the hem of all this. 
And regardless of what we go through, politicians do not have the answer. God is the one who has the answer. We are living in the last days, and God is going to do whatever he has to do so as to shake us up to know that, yes, God is in heaven, and he is looking down, and he is about to do something. And that is why he's using earthquakes and all these measures to bring us to our knees and to look up and to recognize that he is God. And God will try us and he will test us. It's all part of life. That's right. Yes. We may not like it. We may not like that test. I know. I know. (laughs) I know. Yes, even our daily lives, we are being tested. We are being tried. You know, as I just mentioned, Joseph. Yes, and and even, you know, God is calling for us as men and women of Zion to travail for these people in the world who, even in our communities, in our societies, people who, are, who cannot make it on, in their own strength, people who are snared in prison houses. There are some, some people who have, been, who have turned to drugs, those who have turned to prostitutions and homosexuality. We know that these are the ills in our society that we are plagued with. And God is calling on us. He's depending on us that we would go to these people and tell them that Jesus loved them. Jesus still saves and he's concerned about them and he can bring them out of their difficulties. And like Esther, when Esther, you know, God placed her in the palace and he said it was for a time such as this, when the Jews' lives were threatened by Haman and Mordecai was also in the right place. (laughs) Hallelujah. He was at the gate of the palace, and he, could, he knew what was going on, so he could send the message back to Esther. Don't, don't think that you're going to be saved. You won't be saved. If all the Jews die, you will die. And she, she decided, well, I have to get my maidens, and we would fast. And when she stood before the king, she had a petition. You know, she, she had a word. She had, God had a plan. She wasn't just going to tell the king just like that. You know, God had a plan where he would set things up and where Haman himself would have to die instead of the Jews dying. Because why? They prayed, they fasted, and things, God turned things around. Eli, as I mentioned in this chapter, he failed to pray. He failed to travail. And hence, so many things went wrong. And when we don't pray for the things, the ills in our society, the ills in, in, in our country, and sometimes God has called us to take it to different levels, to nations of the world, where people are hurting, where there is famine, you know, and, and there's, there's just pestilence. And God is calling on us to do something, make the difference to these people who are hurting in our world. Thanks, God. Kay, tell us how to get your book. Okay, I I would like to advertise my website here, and um, it's www.labor, and that labor spell L-A-B-O-U-R. It's it's an English way of doing it. L-A-B-O-U-R, laborpains.org. 
Laborpains.org, L-A-B-O-U-R. U-R. Very good. Laborpains.org. And, of course, people can get it from Author House and probably other retail online bookstores. I haven't um, released it to online bookstores as yet. Okay. Well, that will be coming in the near future, I'm sure. Kay, it's so nice to have you on Author Talk. Okay. It was nice of you to have me. And um, I just want to say one more thing is that um, God has called me to do a work back home, which is in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. He has called me to build a complex to look after the ills in society. And um, this, is, this is just the beginning of a project that um, I'm going to use the funds to make available so that I can begin the fulfillment of God's prophecy in my life. Very good. Congratulations. Thank you. That was Kay Blue Games. She is the author of her book, Labor Pains, A Biblical Perspective of God's Destiny for Your Life. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. People think I've made it. I'm popular. I seem happy all the time. I have great clothes and I'm involved in everything. But I have questions, doubts, and fears, just like every other teenager. That's why I'm glad for Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. Join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. The choices we have to make that can alter the course of our lives. Life is too much pressure if we try to go it alone. I tune in to Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell every week to get reminded that I'm not alone. Nicole O'Dell is an expert on what happens in the lives of teenagers. Join her as she deals with topics like peer pressure, purity, drugs, alcohol, and many other things that might come up along the way. She writes books and speaks to people all over the place, but she says her favorite moments are when she can pull up a chair and chat with teens about what's important to us. For more information on Nicole and her books, go to NicoleO'Dell.com. Then join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on Toginet.com. Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, My Vladislaus Dracula, and the author is Teresa Jones, and Teresa joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Teresa. How are you? Well, when I think about Dracula, (laughs) I'm sorry, I kind of, uh, you know, there's a chill that goes up my spine. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's what most people think. Exactly, exactly. But uh, according to your book... And you are a first-hand researcher, much, much different. And so that's what we're going to talk about, the real Dracula, right? Right. The 15th century Romanian prince, yes. 
Why did you write this book? What motivated you to want to know so much, something that, you know, uh, information that nobody probably knows about Dracula? Um, that's correct. But when you asked me about motivation, I, I really didn't need any because I, I had researched so many things and about his real life that it was so much more interesting than any book or any movie could have come up with. I mean, this man was completely amazing. From his imprisonment to, as a child and then as an adult and people forging documents to, to arrest him, to the Pope actually giving money to have people help him in crusades and people in Europe celebrating his name. I mean, this man was unbelievable, the amount of, of things that he had gone through to save his country. And the story actually took on its its own self when I read so many documents. So I hope, you know, when you say motivation, I didn't really need any because my imagine took off from everything that this man had done. And so I hope it gives, you know, readers, you know, something that they have never heard of before, which I know that more than likely they will enjoy. (laughs) Well, this is fiction based on fact. Uh, Yes. I want to just read something that you've written and in introducing your book, you say Amelia Justine Carey. Amelia. Now she's yes. the she's the main character. Amelia Justine Carey, is that right? Yes. And she's yes. Uh, there are reasons why I chose names, and a lot of my friends will see that. But um, Justine was a popular name also in Europe, and so I I chose those certain names in the book to represent, of course, you know uh, the the time of the century of Europe, and, and Amelia Justin Carey was, you know, she was one of the strongest characters, well, she wasn't strong at first, because as you first get to know her, you think she's timid, you think she's, you know, shy, but but as you read throughout the book, you see you see why she changes, and, and you get to understand her more, and her relation to the other characters becomes more apparent as you go throughout the book, and so... Um, how she, you know, um, she's, I had to find a character who was going to be misunderstood as much as Vlad was throughout his life. And so when I, when I started her character, I could, I, I tried to figure out what could one person's job occupation be who liked, who liked to watch or Dracula movies or was interested in Dracula and how could she be misunderstood so I, I portrayed her as a as first starting out as a phlebotomist obviously someone who withdraws people's blood for lab tests so what could be must more misunderstood than that? <laughs> <laughs> like in Dracula <laughs> and you were so, so uh, curious that you even went to Romania Yes, I went. I had to. It was. It was more of a of something inside me that said, "Oh my gosh, how is it that people don't know the real story of this man? I mean, do they really believe all this internet crap? You know that they see. Do they say that he's a blood drinker? There was a a poem by M- Michael Bohem. He was a mind singer. He, he traveled to different places, and he was fed by the stories that he gave. So if he gave really good stories. He would get to stay in these places, these luxurious palaces, for days. So the better off his stories were, the better off that he, that you know, that he would be fed and be taken care of. So what did he do? Obviously, he had to, you know, get some 
you know, good ideas flow. And so he used Vlad Dracula because of all the stories that were made up about him. He just took them and ran with them. And so when he wrote this poem, and it says specifically in this poem because I have translated it, and it does not say anything about Vlad drinking blood. It said they used to dip dip their bread their bread in the blood or their hands. You see, the way you can translate it, when you translate stuff, it could mean 50,000 things to 50,000 people. And so, but what the main translation meant was that they dipped their hands in the blood of their enemies so that they could cleanse them of all, you know, of everything that they had done wrong and that they could, you know, be in peace. And so it was a power kind of a play. And so he never, never dipped the bread in the blood and slurped it down. And that was, that was never stated in any document that I have ever read or ever seen over in Romania. Even that poem that they supposedly got this information from. And the poem, like I said, said that they dipped their hands in the blood. Now, how they got that he, you know, started drinking blood from that is, is where the story goes into the vampire aspect. And so that is where I went into the other direction and said, see, this is the truth. This is not the made of, and this is how they got everything screwed up. And, the, and those things were mostly written anyways by the German merchants who hated Vlad because Vlad uh, wanted to have them treat his people fair. Now, Hungary was very hungry, sorry, <laughs> that was not mentioned, meant to be like that, but, but, you know, Hungary was very, was very, it was in need of money because of King Matthias and, and what had happened, and that's another story, but because the merchants would always come into Wallachia and, and take a lot of Wallachia's, uh, merchandise and then not give them a fair market value, well, Vlad saw that, and so he said, you will, when you come to my country, you will be fair. Well, what happened with that is after he started, you know, going through his, his, you know, borders and making sure that all these people were being fair, they weren't getting a lot of money. And so they needed to start cheating people and doing a lot of other things. And Vlad saw that. And so one of the main concerns of why he hit Brasov so hard was because the fact that, um, you know, he cheated the customers and he cheated his customers and they were also harboring Vlad's enemies and portraying them as princes of Wallachia when he was already prince. And so, you know, it's kind of mocking him. They also, you know, would, when they harbored his enemies, they would say, oh, you know, these are, this is going to be the new prince and you better watch out. And so he's like, no, I'm taking, I'll take care of that right now. The main reason that he did go after the Brasov was because of the merchants and the harboring of his enemies. Now, whoever got in the way, got in the way. You know, it wasn't like he went there to kill everybody. You know, he went there to, to, to have a point. And even the king of Hungary had wrote a letter to Brasov stating that you better not be cheating him anymore because he will retaliate and come after you. Now, even if their own king told them, you know, you better stop what you're doing, he's going to come after you. Well, if they ignored him, then they were, they were on their own. And even the king said, you're on your own. And so when Vlad came and, you know, destroyed, you know, uh, their, their merchandise, he had a right to do it. But he had no time to sit out front and set out a nice table 
and, you know, and chairs and have a meal. You know, if he was on a mission, there was no way he could also impale 30,000 people. When it was told over there, it was only 400, a maximum of 40 to 400. You know, it it kind of varies because you, you, you have no idea how many. So he couldn't have been thirty thousand. So he did kill his enemies that way. Um, well, he didn't learn it. He did not uh, learn learn this from from uh, the Turks. He supposedly learned this from the Germans. Everybody says that he learned it from the Turks when he was imprisoned. It is a possibility, but nobody knows for sure. You know, but what the German merchants used to do with people who stole from them? This is ironic too. Um, the German merchants impaled the people who stole from them, and they would set them outside their gates. So this is what Vlad did. He said, you know, you impale your people this way for stealing. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to show you respect. (laughs) I know. Show respect by impaling your people from stealing from mine. You see. So that's why he was a great protector of his people. That's why he was called a hero among his people. Oh, yes, yes, that's why he was a hero, because uh, the merchants loved, his own merchants loved him, and because of the fact that he had so many battles against the Turks to get them out of his country. Now, what the Turks did, uh, what the Sultan did, was he wanted 500 boys taken from all villages in Wallachia to be given to the Sultan. That is, that was the Sultan wanted as a tribute to not you know, go to war with Wallachia, not to come through them. You know, Vlad was the only one who who stood up and said, no, you will not take my people and I will not give you any more money. We need this as a, as a city to continue to prosper. And so, you know, um, when he said that, you know, and this was about the same time as the Pope, the Pope had... Uh, you know, sent out word, we we need, you know, more people to come to the aid and to to help us in protecting our country from Turkish invasion, from this Ottoman Empire spreading. Because this was after the fall of Constantinople, you know, where nobody thought that this, was, this city was going to fall. But, of course, the Sultan made it fall. And so everybody was kind of scared and timid of the Sultan for doing that. Well, here, Vlad Dracula... You know, years later, this was years later, you know, because Constantinople was like in May of 53, of 1453. Well, Vlad didn't take the reins of a second reign until, you know, 56. And so um, in 56, when he took over, he had so much to do in his country that, I mean, you know, there were hardly any laws because princes would come and go. And so with, with that, um, he knew that the boyers of the country were only in it for themselves, and the boyers meaning the, the the landowners who had all the money. There were so many things going on with this man in six years that it, it was phenomenal. I mean, he, he had the Ottoman Empire coming after him that wanted 500 boys every year from different villages, and that would take from his army and just you know make the armies of the Ottoman Empire bigger. Sure. And then they sure. also wanted money. And so, you know, then he had the German merchants, you know, to deal with, stealing from his merchants, and obviously that was not making his country any fuller, so he had to deal with that. Then he had his own country running rampant with beggars and thieves, and, and of course there are many, you know, atrocities that he was said to have committed with those things by burning all the sick and the poor. Well, we happen to know for a fact that the plague was running, you know, through through Europe, all over the place. And if he saw that, the only way to get rid of the plague 
you have to burn the body. Right. And so, you know what I mean? I know that sounds like, oh, my gosh. No, that was the way they did it back then, right. (laughs) So his enemies enemies created this bloodthirsty vampire image. Well, they didn't commit, they did not, they didn't do the vampire image. That was Bram Stoker. Because Bram Stoker is the one who came along and used only tidbits of information of Vlad's life to to suggest he was a vampire. Like I said, that Michael Bohem poem, that nowhere states that he was a blood drinker. It's what he did his hands in it. Not any piece of bread and slivered out, nothing like that. And so when when people made up stories about these, some of some of these historical documents they're using aren't historical. They're made up they were made up by the German merchants, like the Rothel letters. If you've ever heard of the Rothel letters, um, they were um, they were three letters supposedly written by Vlad Dracula that were um, that condemned him to the atrocities and the crimes um, that he was said to have committed. But he did not write them. They were forged. They were they were not they were not proven to be forged. They were proved to be forged by a German um, monk from the church in Brasov. And so. Um, what the, what the problem with that is, is that many people, if you read over so many Internet interviews and, and you read in every single book, at some particular point they say, these documents were mainly spread to tarnish Vlad Dracula's reputation. And then you have a paragraph later, they're using it as historical evidence. And I'm like, what? You just told us in a paragraph ago that they were used as, you know, propaganda. How can you use anything that's, you know, like propaganda to to use as a historical evidence? I mean, you know, I just don't understand how they could do that, especially the Rothel letters that were proved to be forgeries from a German monk, you know, in the Brasov Church. And then some of these people still use those documents to condemn him, to condemn Vlad, to these atrocities. And so I would, I just, you know, it's somehow that you even get on the Internet and they say, you know, at some point in time that at some point in their, inner, you know, in their, in their documents, they say, you know, these documents were written to degrade him and put him in jail. And then you're using them. Well, why are you using them? I, I really believe that if he would have had a fair trial now, he would have been a free man. I mean, there would be no way that they could have used any of the, this information because the Rothel letters were proved to be forgeries. All of these atrocities that he committed were at the time were validated by, by the time of the, by the century. I mean, even the Spanish Inquisition was going on. Oh, my gosh, have you ever heard anything about that? There was nothing compared to what he did. You well, know, Teresa, uh, he, t- Teresa mm-hmm. uh, you know, you just want to make sure everyone understands that this is not an encyclopedia. This is an actual f- I know. fictional <laughs> novel that it really is. And it sounds like Amelia is like you in a quest for truth about Dracula. That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> I, I, I have been told that. <laughs> but, 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 you know, you have to get into your books. Right. If you, don't, if you do not put yourself there... It's not readable. Nobody wants to read something. He went here, she went there, no. they did this. You have to get some emotion going into there. And so what I did was I tried to put myself there. What would she do? How would she react? How would he react? Who's talking in the situation? And so, you know, I, I, did, incorpor- I, I did try to bring a little bit more of life into it, um, as in, uh, you know, if you were 
right there. And that's what you wanted to do. And there's, there's a lot of information about why the book is purple. Uh, well, not a lot, but I mean, it's, it's a couple of places you'll, you'll have a little bit of, <laughs> of hints throughout the book and how he got the star on his, on his um, famous hat, the famous portrait. Even right. the famous portrait of him has a story behind it. I mean, this, and every little step that you go throughout his life, from his death even, and the mysteries of, of how he actually died, I tried to, you know, I got the best information I could and used what I had available to give an accurate description of how he actually died and where he would be truly buried. Well, Teresa, we need to uh, wrap this up. We really appreciate it's fascinating. My goodness, there's so much here, and everyone will really enjoy this fictional approach to discovering the real Dracula, and tell us how to get your book. Well, it can be found um, on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Borders.com. Um, I got it in an e-book, so it's in hard and soft cover, and um, also on Author House, definitely. And so um, I've got it in some local stores around here, and I'm hoping to get it... Um, into uh, you know the brick and mortar places pretty soon. I've been working on that, so um, I I I do have a couple of other books that are that are out there in, in you know some brick and mortar uh, establishments. And so I ha- I also have a um, I'm sorry I also have a contest going. This is going to be airing on Saturday, right? Right. Saturday. Uh, okay. I have a contest that that's still going until the 31st of May. And someone, some lucky person who answers all seven questions correct that I have, you know, thrown out there over the internet through the last thirty days, um, they can get it. They can have a chance at a free copy. I'm going to sign it and I'll send it off to them if they if they follow all the rules on my website. And, and what is your website? Um, the, uh, well, they have to go to um, Twitter first. See, it's kind of a game. You go to Twitter first, and then you go to MySpace. But on Twitter, it's Teresa's Escape on Twitter. And then from there, they have a, a link that they can go to my blog on MySpace that they can find the question. And then when they answer the question, at the end of the, when they get all seven questions answered, then they go, can go to my Dracula at yahoo.com. And they can submit all seven answers, or they can write me and and tell me what they think about the book. Well, Teresa, we want to thank you for being on Author Talk. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you very much. That was Teresa Jones. She is the author of her book, My Vladislaus Dracula.